Greetings. Today is November 1st, 2021. My name is Christopher Hoster, and I'm the founder and executive director of Opus One Berks Chamber Choir. It's my pleasure to welcome you to season two uh, of Opus One's podcast, Octavo, which airs on the first of the month. The podcast will cover pertinent topics and issues related to the world of choral music. We will also spotlight people and ensembles and organizations having a positive impact on our artistic community. Each podcast will have a main theme and will feature guests with knowledge in that particular area. Joining me as hosts today are Debbie Silas and Scott Tice. Later, we will also be joined by Michaela Milks. Michaela currently serves as the assistant to the executive director and the producer of Octavo. We've entitled today's podcast, Thankfulness and Togetherness, and Opus One recently held our Broadway dinner concert and fundraising event at the Doubletree Hotel, our first in-person event in almost 19 months. After a year of completely virtual programming, we truly realized the importance of making music together and the importance role arts has organizations play in our community in the most basic definition of the work. As we head into November and the holiday season, we thought it would be appropriate to discuss why we are thankful for Opus One and the return to in-person singing, and also talk about why it's important for individuals and arts organizations to work together. To begin, I'm happy to introduce some of our individuals that are joining us today from our Opus One family. Joining us now are Molly Kinkevich and Scott Giacobi, both of whom live partly in the world of singer and partly in the world of audience member. Molly has just moved north to Scranton after uh, getting married, but sang with Opus One for several years. Scott often takes part in the master work performances and uh, took part in much of the virtual programming offered last season. Both Molly and Scott attended the recent uh, Broadway dinner concert. Also joining us is Diana Cook, the current president of Opus One's board of directors. She was one of two pianists at the Broadway concert, accompanying for our headliners, Maria Damore and Jonathan Reinhold. Welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us today. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi. It's great to be here. Diana, we're going to start off with you uh, being a music educator um, in the schools. Why is music important, um, not only to the kids that you teach, but also to individuals um, such as ourselves and uh, the people that we sang for on Sunday evening? Uh, music's important in so many ways. Um, it's an inherent part of human nature. Um, you don't have to understand or know a single thing about it, and you can respond to it. Just look at toddlers. It's instantly a part of them. Um, it also brings people together, people from all walks of life. That's what I love the most about Opus. Um, it's a part, it's an important part of our culture and our heritage. It's also one of my favorite phrases is music is what feelings sound like. So music runs the gamut of all human emotions, whether you're listening to it or creating it, any emotion can be expressed through music. Now in attending our concert on Sunday evening, Molly and Scott, um, we know that a concert is a unique as it a unique experience that it offers the excitement of hearing live musicians while providing the sound as it's meant to be heard if it is an acoustic uh, music that is where else can anyone sit with other people like you guys did on sunday evening listen and enjoy the music um, in silence so that there's no distraction distractions besides music itself um, can one of you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about your experience that 
uh, you had Sunday evening uh, when going to our concert. Sure, Scott, I'd be happy to. Um, well, you know, Scott, as you pointed out, we had the privilege in, of doing virtual concerts this past year as a singer, you know, that uh, was probably the only venue we had open to us. But when you get in, in, in with an audience, when you get to feel the excitement and the energy and the dynamics that are present in a live performance, it's such a, a different experience than when we did virtually. I love to sing. It was great to sing virtually, but the feedback that between the audience and the performers is what's a crucial part of any performance. And that was really just wonderful to be there and to see, you know, hundreds of people that were in the audience all feeling the same um, emotions that my wife and I felt while we attended that conference. And because it, it, it was a spectacular conference, the, uh, the, the soloists were fantastic. Opus One, of course, was just in their best form, truly in their best form. That's very nice to hear. Molly, uh, what about your experience that evening? Well, first of all, it was, I can agree with Scott in terms of the whole virtual experience. It was definitely different. It wasn't the same. It wasn't, you know, it was Opus One, but it was like we weren't together and I was hearing myself sing and not everyone else. So having this opportunity to go to a live performance with Opus One, it was a little different now, especially not being part of the group anymore in terms of singing. So I was very much looking forward to it. And my husband and I ex had an amazing experience. And in terms of, like Scott said, you know, the singers and the music and just the, the whole repertoire was just on point. And just, there's nothing like a live performance. You get so much, I feel like it, you get a lot more out of it. I mean, you can get a lot out of it by watching it something virtually, but there's nothing experiencing something like in like an in-concert performance. So I was really happy to see that Opus One was doing in-person concerts again. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing them the rest of the season. Did um, either of you um, have any uh, concerns going into the concert because uh, this podcast will be heard by people who maybe have not experienced uh, an in-person concert yet. Um, as a person who attended an in-person concert, uh, did you feel that you were safe, that there were um, the protocols were all there? We know that everyone that came to our concert um, had to show their vaccination card. Um, what did that mean to you knowing that you were going to a concert that held those kinds of standards? Well, I thought, first of all, that Opus One took all the necessary precautions and requiring what was required for to attend the concert. And for anybody that is listening and wants to attend an in-person Opus One concert, I would definitely recommend it because they definitely have done their homework in terms of making sure everyone is safe, especially because there were so many people at this in-person live concert. And like Scott said, there are you know, over, there were hundreds of people there. So I, I firmly believe that everything went well and I felt safe and my husband felt safe and we were fine. Scott, how about you feel the same I, way? I agree with Molly. I thought um, Opus One went above and beyond 
uh, what I've experienced at other large gatherings. Um, uh, I was just at the um, uh, president of Alvernia's uh, dinner uh, this past week. Uh, I sing with Alvernia Chorus. We sang for it. Uh, there was nobody checking vaccination cards at the door. Uh, there was no requirements for masking. And I was there with hundreds of people. So, um, you know, there is a whole gamut of things going on out there. And, you know, I happen to be fully vaccinated. So I, I guess I have some level of, of uh, security that uh, I will be okay. But um, no, Opus One made it really um, uh, special because uh, I had a guest with me who uh, is just a little older than I am and very concerned about being out in public and has not uh, sung with any other groups like I have. And she felt very comfortable there. So uh, I want to thank you for, for that. It, it made it possible for her to attend the, con the, the, the concert and she was just thrilled to be there. Oh, that's nice to hear. Diane, I'm gonna throw this back uh, to you. Uh, both of us have been a part of many musical organizations before Opus, going back to our junior high days. Um, we, we all know what goes into uh, a performance, uh, the practice time and so forth. This concert leading up in, especially in what we all have been through the last 19 months, is there anything that you can share as far as what you think people maybe not had realized sitting out in the audience um, that we actually did go through as far as um, the practice time and um, just anything else that you could add to that? Yeah, I guess sitting as it's been a long time since I've been an audience member for choral groups. <laughs> I tend to be in things. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that goes into it, um, both as you know, from the singers to the musicians to the behind the scenes, you know, getting the dinner orders, working with the double tree, putting all that together. Um, they don't realize the hours put in, also the conductors and directors, um, the hours put in of work and it's what's expected. You know, you rehearse on a Sunday evening for hours but many times musicians are at home listening to recordings and um, rehearsing their parts and going over their notes and just the, all the details that go into the planning of that, especially mm -hmm. a huge concert like the Broadway dinner concert we just did. Yeah, I, I wanna just jump in here just a second and just acknowledge all of those people that helped make that concert possible again. I mean, not only the singers, which had their own, they had their own part to play, um, and you know maybe the most important part, but you know Peter Sunderman who conducted all of those rehearsals and the performance, Matt Ivino who took care of all of the dinner preparations and organizing all of those meals and everything, Michaela Milks for just being there for everything that we possibly needed in organizing and the logistics, Dale Ritchie and Debbie Silas for the baskets for doing the silent auction. Um, it's it takes a village. That's really what it is when, it, you know, when a choir puts on a performance of this scale and magnitude, it takes everybody. It's not just one person um, putting it together. And, you know, also the Doubletree workers, um, you know, Craig, Craig Poole, Madison Arters, uh, all the servers and staff, they were from phenomenal. Um, we couldn't have asked for, for uh, a better location to have that concert. So I'm really happy. And thanks for everybody, all the work that everybody did putting it together. And I'll... Um ask this question back to Scott and Molly. Um, you attended and sang an Opus One concert, you but now attended some open, Opus One concerts. What makes you keep coming back? What do you think uh, makes people coming back to our concerts? What do we have to offer that 
possibly some other organizations don't offer? Well, first off, the quality of the concert itself, the uniqueness of the music chosen, uh, the quality of the singers, the, um, uh, as, as you said, the work that you can tell that was put into the rehearsals to prepare for that. Um, you know, that's what brings people. They go to Opus One because they know they're going to hear a concert that is generally unlike that which you might hear from any other groups. And it certainly has, you know, Christopher, you know, does a fantastic job in selecting music. I'm looking forward to the spring concert. Um, Vaughn Williams, I think that'll be just phenomenal. Um, I'm, I'm putting it in my calendar to sing with it. So, um, you know, that's really, uh, people just know, they know what to expect when they come to an Opus One concert. It is not an unknown quantity and they know in Reading, they're going to get the best bang for their buck. Molly, how about you? I have to agree with Scott. I first joined Opus One right after college and I was part of choirs and theater and I was definitely going to miss being part of something. So once I attended my first Opus One concert, it was a Memorial Day concert. And I was hooked ever since, you know, joining the women's choir that summer. And then just, again, what Scott said, just the quality of the pieces, because a lot of the pieces that Christopher chooses that I have never heard of, you know, languages I've never sung in. And so just experiencing all of that because you grow so much as a musician and I'm so much better for it because of this group. And yeah, definitely it keeps me coming. It'll keep me coming back. And hopefully one day I would like to be part of the group again with not being so far. But yeah, anybody that comes to an Opus One concert, they know the repertoire that's coming. They might not have ever heard the piece before, but they know it's going to be performed very well under wonderful musicians, under wonderful conductors, and they're in for a treat when they come. Well, that just about does it. We truly just want to thank each and every one of you for taking time out today to share your thoughts um, as we head into the rest of our, our season. We, uh, again, truly appreciate it. We couldn't do it without you as the audience members, and we look forward to making more music in the future. Thank you for having us, Scott. Thank, Thank you, Christopher. Molly. Thank you so much, everybody. It was great to be here. Thanks, everyone. Now for the main interview, we are joined by a very special guest. And to handle the introduction, I'm calling on Michaela Milks, the producer of our podcast and Opus One's assistant to the executive director. Michaela, the floor is all yours. Thanks, Scott. Today, our special guest is Sydney Welch. Sydney is serving as an author and educator. She works and lives in the city of Philadelphia. She graduated from Arcadia University in 2020 and published her book, The Art of Collaboration, later that same year. She began work as a case manager in Philadelphia Charter School and is pursuing a dual certificate in regular and special education at the University of Pennsylvania. 
The second edition of her book is scheduled to be published sometime in the next few months and will include exclusive content from new creators in the Philadelphia area. She is very passionate about her work and her family and is using her passion for collaboration to inspire her efforts with her students. Sydney is interested in working in the nonprofit sector when she finishes her time at University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for joining us, Sydney. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Indeed, Sydney, thank you so much. Um, the title of today's podcast is Thankfulness and Togetherness. And in the first segment, we had singers, board members, and audience members tell us why they were thankful for Opus One and the return to in-person singing. Now in this segment, we'll shift a little bit to talk about togetherness. Now in your book, The Art of Collaboration, an in-depth look at collaborative practices for creative people, it's basically a supportive document attesting to the benefits of working together with others, either in the same field or those with completely a different skill set towards a common goal, of course. And further that it, um, and that goal is not only easier to achieve, but it can also lead to a better quality product than a similar venture without the collaborative element being present. So in your book, you dive into multiple accounts with individuals in various fields. Now, how did you determine which instances to include in your book? And what do you feel was the most profound example that you used? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so the first thing was I started writing the book when I was a senior in college and I started writing it in the end of 2019. And by the time I was really into my manuscript, we were very into COVID. So I wrote most of the book actually quarantined, um, and in lockdown. So it was a really weird timing to be writing a book about the importance of collaboration when we were not able to physically have a single interview. I didn't interview one person for the book in person. It was all over Zoom and phone, which was just a little bit of like irony. I don't know. It was kind of funny. And so um, at first when I was deciding who to interview, I reached out to my closest family and friends and said, who's coming to mind that we know and then I reached out to my direct network. And then I started kind of pushing through some LinkedIn, like kind of just cold reaching out to people saying, I'm really interested in you. Would you consider being featured in my book? Um, I think there ended up being like two interviews that I didn't use because they just didn't quite fit, but I still um, honored those people in a different way. But I pretty much used everyone's interviews because I... I felt like everyone's story did have a place because everyone was collaborating in really unique ways. So one of my favorite interviews was with a woman I worked for as an intern at Print Fresh, Amy Voloshin, and she talked about collaborating for people who are introverted. And I am not introverted at all. And it was never something that even occurred to me to consider. And when I reached out there, she's like, I'm kind of introverted. Like, I don't know if I have a lot to say. And I realized how important it was to include that perspective. So that was one of my most favorites, just because it was a perspective I would never have been able to provide without having heard her story. And that was why I reached out to so many different people was to make sure that no matter who was reading the book, they could connect to one person and recognizing that not everyone would connect to every type of collaboration that's discussed, but hoping that everyone could connect to at least one. 
I I really liked the uh, the references that you made to Leonardo da Vinci and the studio in uh, the Renaissance and that whole process of the workshop and you know these apprentices. Um, we think about like Leonardo da Vinci as this sort of larger than life figure and doing all of the work himself, when really you know it was basically a collaborative effort and he was putting these final touches on things or finishing works or you know starting them and coming in here and there, but a lot of the time it was these apprentices that were doing the work. And even in the day, I guess, um, you explain how uh, people would say, would see this work and say, oh, this is of that studio rather than, oh, this is like a work by Leonardo da Vinci himself. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a really, really interesting uh, facet of your book that, that I found really neat and cool. Um, but it's a really different process than we have today. And I think you make that point as well, that you know, we see um, artists today, musicians today, creating these these pieces, and they get this fame, and they attain this level of fame, and it's it's their work. You talk about calling for like a neo renaissance in collaboration, basically. So, how do you think that the arts, because we're an artistic organization, how do you think the arts can benefit from moving back to that model? I love this question. So I'm obsessed. <laughs> with Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and I was actually studying for my senior thesis at the time that I started the book. And so when I was writing that, and um, that kind of inspired me to write the book the way I did, like framing it through that history of Leonardo. Um, and so in terms of this like neo-Renaissance idea, I think that it is sometimes uncomfortable when I first pitch it to people, when I really get on my soapbox and try to be like, come on, this idea. But um, what I'm really saying is, first of all, like anyone who's obsessed with or even just teaches history, you teach it because history repeats itself. So naturally we're gonna see things reoccurring. That just is, that's how history works, stuff reoccurs. And so that's not really that crazy of a topic but we had society just functioned differently. And part of it's because there wasn't certain technology available. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, things like social media and Zoom and what have you brought society together. Like I can talk to someone in Japan whenever I want like that, you know, so in that way, we're more connected, but I do think on the day to day, like you just walk on an airplane, everyone's like this on their phone with their head in their palm. And so in that way, you're not having a conversation necessarily because everyone's on their phone or society's just more disconnected in some ways. And so we're also less reliant on our communities in a lot of ways. And then I actually think ironically during COVID that reliance on your community kind of came out because we couldn't go anywhere. And so um, this whole concept of like the neo-Renaissance, I'm more pushing that people look back to this sort of like codependency on each other and on your community. And when we talk about Leonardo specifically, like at the time, anything from his workshop was good enough to be considered his. And so now there's this really aggressive individuality. And I think that this is definitely all around the world, but I see it a lot in American society specifically just because of our national identity. Um, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, but I think kind of being comfortable enough to relinquish some of that need for, and I talk about this in the book, like credit and um, just like I did this, 
almost frees you to just be more creative. But I understand people have jobs and we need to make money. So there is like a degree of impracticality to that. But for instance, like I'm a teacher and I work with kids and my classroom is very collaborative. Like the kids are coming up with ideas. I'm putting my stuff into it. I work on kids with a lot of their projects and I'm not like, well, I did that project. I got an A, like, it's just not like that. Like the it's the kid's thing. And I just supported and I'm happy to be the supporting character. And I guess maybe what I'm saying, I'm kind of going around a little bit, but like people need to be feeling confident about these supporting roles. I guess like the final piece is what's more important than like who did it or who the credit goes to. But then I also know we've got issues with authorship. And so it's not as simple or direct. It's very nuanced in that way. But I think the supporting roles are like one of the most important things. Like, for example, you were saying Michaela wouldn't typically share on this podcast, but she's producing it. Like that's a really important role, but we don't hear her voice, but it doesn't mean she still doesn't have a a really crucial role in producing the podcast. So it's like, I don't know if I totally answered your question there, but it's, it's no, a very new subject. It's something that we can really, I, I think we can, as a choir, we can really relate to because everything we do is basically collaborative. You can't have a choral piece performed and it not be a collaboration in some way. There has to be at least two people to make it function. Um, and we're always doing stuff, you know, with instruments or different accompanists, or we're working with other organizations and, and putting it together. So we have layer upon layer of collaboration that, that we do every day. And um, I think it's beneficial and it, it always has served us well and made the product better. I think my, my last question, I had like five more questions, but <laughs> I mean, um, one of my questions was about you, you give percentages about how more and more, more people, kids, millennials are, are really digging this collaboration um, and they're, they're yearning for more of it. So I'll, I'll do two part question. One part is, do you think that, you know, that's a good sign for the future? and that this sort of neo-Renaissance and collaboration will happen. And then the second part of my question is, how has this, this work, this book, how has that affected you and, and your own personal endeavors? And have you found that your, your collaborations are more fruitful because of knowing this information? I know that those things are kind of not related, but I'm okay. clumping them together. Um, awesome. No, I love that. So, um, so as far as do I think the young people, which I am one of, I'm only 23. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not like this super old Well, so I, I teach high school, I actually mostly teach 12th grade. So it's kind of funny because I started when I was 22, I was only three years older than some of my older students, which was a bizarre experience. But so I had a lot of ways to connect and I still do. It's only been two years for me. And I actually was having a conversation with a student today in my office and we were talking about something personal that he was going through but he was basically saying his parents didn't raise him to react the way I was encouraging him to react which was to breathe through his frustration and like walk away from it instead of like fighting the power or whatever you want to say and he and I he's kind of like well that's not that's not how I was raised like that's not what I was taught to do and I said I respect your parents just like I respect my parents 
but we have to do better than our parents. Like we, we were born and they did the very best they could. And now we have to do better than they did, even though they did great, like not sending any shade to anyone's parents. And he kind of paused for a second. And I said, well, you're going to have kids one day and you want your kids to be better than you've been. Like you, that's, you know, we just keep evolving. And I really think we're seeing that with the younger generation, which I'm very proud to be a part of. We take the best things we can from our parents. And then we also push them to be better and have new information. And I think that's constantly what's happening. And so I do think because of some of the technology we have access to that kids are just collaborating in different and more accessible ways, which is super cool. Um, And obviously there's another side to the social media and stuff, but the side that I choose to engage in is I can collaborate with people from all over the world. And it's so cool. Um, And then there's also this general opportunity to connect with people just around and meet up and make friends that way. And I see a lot of my kids doing that. Like they've met a lot of their friends through social media and now they play sports together and do projects together and make music. I have a lot of students who make music, um, just so cool. And then in terms of, so I do think that's going to happen that neo-Renaissance, I think it's happening. I just think if there's that consciousness to it, it will happen faster, better, and more deliberately. And so that's kind of what I was pushing for in my book. Like, I think it's already happening and you see it, but I think if you name it and push it, it's just going to be so much more cohesive and deliberate, like I said before. Um, And then as far as like my own kind of, I guess, role and and how it's impacted my ability to collaborate, um, I'm actually a very individual person. And I am very independent. And so collaboration isn't something that is super natural to me. I'm a pretty natural leader. And so I think from hearing other perspectives, I was able to really like inquire within myself how to relinquish some of my need to be the leader. Like I'm never someone who needs a lot of credit or wants to like like, I hate when people sing happy birthday to me. Like, I don't like to be the center of attention, but like, I do like to lead the charge for things. And I'm very comfortable speaking up when I need to. And so it made me really think about my role as a leader. And when I can, instead of having to lead myself, empower other people to take leadership and how that sort of um, like manifested in a tangible way is with my students. So there's this teaching thing that I'm learning as I go through my teaching stuff that is when a kid says the wrong answer instead of telling them the right answer you kind of keep pushing and asking why and why do you think that and help them get to the right answer themselves instead of saying oh that's not right this is what I was looking for and at first a lot of times I'd say oh like no this is what I was hoping you would say and now I'm starting to get better at asking why and saying, okay, give me some more. Like, why do you think that? Where does that come from? Can you show me where you got that? And I'm starting to see my students be the leaders of their own education and develop these critical thinking skills. Whereas I was before leading that and now they're leading it and I'm able to support them. And so that's one really tangible way that I'm seeing that myself. Um, And then also just generally willing to step down and let someone else be the boss. Like, um, which is hard for me because I like to be the leader. And so 
I think just hearing about how other people were empowering people to lead, I'm more comfortable not leading and kind of trusting the teams I choose and surround myself with. Well, Sydney, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope our listeners learned a lot. We all enjoyed listening to you and just thank you again so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Sydney. of each episode of Octavo, we'd like to recognize someone in the community who is having a positive impact on our artistic community and fulfilling Opus One's creed, together we make Reading sing. Since today's episode is entitled Thankfulness and Togetherness, we wanted to highlight an organization that helps bring our community together by supporting the arts. I'm very pleased to welcome Heidi Williamson, Senior Vice President for Programs and Initiatives, and Jason Bruderek, Director of Communications of the Berks County Community Foundation. The mission of the Berks County Community Foundation is to promote philanthropy and improve the quality of life for the residents of Berks County. The organization administers 360 charitable funds, and as of June 2019, has awarded $59.1 million in grants and scholarships. Greetings to you both, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Please tell us a little bit more about the BCCF and the work your organization does and the impact it has on our community. Heidi? Sure. Um, Berks County Community Foundation helps people who want to do something charitable in the community. And we do that in a couple of different ways. Usually people come to us because they have a cause that they really care a lot about, or they have someone in their family who passed away, or they're doing estate planning and, and trying to decide where they want their money to go after they're gone. And they have something in the community in Berks County that they really care about. So we work with them usually to establish a fund um, as you mentioned, we have 360 plus different charitable funds that were set up by individuals, families, businesses in Berks County to support causes that they care about. So we work with them, they, we establish a fund, either they put money in that fund right now for grants or scholarships or it comes later. Um, but we work with them to figure that out. And then we manage the money that's in that fund so that it will continue to be there year after year after year so that we can make the grants or the scholarships 
that the people wanted to see happen in the community. So that's really what we do. We help people who want to do something charitable. We manage the money that they set aside for that charitable purpose. And then we provide grants and scholarships as they intended out into the community. Jason, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I think uh, Heidi summed up what we do pretty well. Um, just that the funds that we create for people um, are just very unique to what each person wants them wants them to do in perpetuity. As Heidi said, it's it's up to the donor and they can specify what that fund is going to, um, what types of programs that fund will contribute to or specific organizations that that fund will contribute to or the types of scholarships that will give away. So each of the 360 plus funds is, is very unique. Well, I have a question, kind of a personal question, was working with my son at Northeast L, uh, Middle School um, in their theater program. I actually started it when he started and we received funds, uh, grants every year from the Brooks County Retired Teachers three-year organization. Um, how do people go about, like if they want to give money to certain groups to you know, pass it on to uh, those different people that are receiving grants? Sure. Um, people can give to any fund at the Community Foundation at any time. And the fund that you mentioned is, it was the Berks County School Retirees. They started that mm -hmm. fund and it's a teacher mini grant fund. So it it's really a cool fund. It makes grants usually of not more than about $600, but it offsets the cost for teachers who wanna do some, some sort of innovative or unique program in their classroom. So that's just one example of one fund. And people um, know the Community Foundation lots of, from lots of different ways, just depending on how they connected in and what fund they connected in through. Some people see us as the, schol the place to get scholarships. Um, you know, Teachers will see us as a place to get mini grants, the health and human service organizations know that there's funding there to help them with the work that they're doing. So it really just sort of depends on how people connect with us. But any of those funds are listed on our website and can be donated to at any time. And then we make sure that those grants go out the way that the, the fund agreement was written. It was definitely helpful for us to get the program started because it you know helped to pay for the rights and everything that we needed to produce a show. And so it was a great help for us. Uh, Opus One uh, just had our first in-person event after 18 months of virtual programming. Can you talk a little about the impact of in-person programming and how BCCF has responded to changing needs in the era of COVID-19? Sure. So, you know, we have so many wonderful arts organizations in Berks County that really just had to put their programming on hold or go to virtual programming. And it, it was really amazing to see how the arts and culture organizations shifted gears and made sure that they were still able to produce great material for people in Berks County and beyond to listen to. But we knew that because a lot had switched to virtual, the, the revenue sources that these arts organizations have from people coming to their performances and to different events, it wasn't there during the pandemic. So the Community Foundation Board decided that they wanted to put out some money. Um, we, it was back in February, actually, to look at the end of this year and say, okay, people are going to start to be able to go back and be in person and do in-person events again. These arts and culture organizations aren't likely to have 
the funding they need to get those up and running, these first events that are going to start to bring money in for them again, so that we provided a grant program for arts and culture organizations to do those initial events again and get sort of ramped back up and, and get the community ramped back up and allow people to be out of the house and, and together and doing things. So, um, and from what I understand, it was a wonderful performance, so. The special program that Heidi was talking about that gave out those grants, um, they would range from like $1,500 to $15,000, depending on the scope of the project and the organization that was gonna use the money. And not only did it fund um, arts programming, but it also funded um, some planning grants so organizations could better plan for their uh, future. And then there was also a third section um, called the You Are Here grant program. And that funded some pretty specific things. And I know Heidi was especially fond of the You Are Here program. I, I believe it was pretty much her idea. Heidi, do you want to talk about what the You Are Here grants were intended to do? Sure, and I think it goes with your theme of togetherness for this episode. Um, the You Are Here grants were really meant to fund programs and activities and initiatives that allowed people in Berks County to get together, to meet with each other, to talk to each other, to get to know each other, people who might not otherwise have, have an opportunity to do that. And there were different grants that came out of that. Um, one was a theater per, a production that just happened down in Boyertown where a group collected stories of how the pandemic impacted different people all across Berks County and then made a theatrical production that that showed that um, and shared those stories. So it, it was a way to connect people that were maybe across the whole county, but were experiencing similar things during that time. Um, one of the local libraries is doing a pen pal program where senior citizens are and uh, teenagers are writing letters back and forth just in Berks County. So there's there's lots of different ways that that's been uh, put to use. But it, the idea is that we're all one county and we can can get to know each other a little bit better and share information and ideas and um, it'll it'll be better for all of us and strengthen the community. Well, you totally answered my question that I was going to ask. So <laughs> the, the only question it that I really want to ask, and you already answered. <laughs> but that's fine. So um, is there anything else you want to ask? Well, we can just maybe close uh, by asking, you know, are there any um, upcoming events that you'd like to highlight, and you know, tell us how we can find how someone can find out more information about about your organization, BCCF? Sure, um, there are some upcoming events uh, that the Community Foundation has supported with the grants through those special programs that Heidi was talking about. Um, one going on right now is an exhibit at Reading Public Museum called Medieval to Metal, the Art and Evolution of the Guitar. Um, this exhibit is uh, at the Reading Public Museum through January 9th and it spans centuries of design and craftsmanship and features some ancient items such as an oud, which is a predecessor to the guitar. Um, November 12th, Customers Bank is hosting a luncheon at the Doubletree to benefit the Military Assistance Fund of uh, the Community Foundation. Just two more things, November 14th, uh, for the first time, Greater Reading's six local theater groups are gonna team up for 
uh, one large performance at the Miller Center at Reading Area Community College. And then uh, in mid-November, Reading Theater Project is going to stage its next original production, uh, partly inspired by the pandemic, and it's entitled Mixed Messages. Uh, and that's going to be at the WCR Center for the Arts, um, and it features local performers and playwrights. And all of those upcoming events can be found at our website, bccf.org under the events section. Um, you can get links and more information there. Um, and of course, the website is a great way to keep up with what we're doing. And you can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter um, at the bottom of any page of the website, which again is bccf, as in frank.org. And of course, we're all also on social media. Um, I think we're almost everything, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, we even have a TikTok, believe it or not, so. <laughs> well, I just wanted, the last thing that I wanna say is just thank you on behalf of everybody at Opus One. Thank you for BCCF's continued support of our organization. Um, you really do a, a world of good, you know, specifically where, where music is concerned and we're glad to be a part of that. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and that you join us next month for Opus One Octavo. And remember, together we can make Reading sing. For more information about Opus One, visit our website, www.opus1chamberchoir.com. <laughs>